and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me today to discuss some camera stuff. We've got a lot of Panasonic news. We've also got some updates on the Logger's Lunchbox. But Devin, what have you been up to, man? <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, I've been I've been working hard, unfortunately, uh, mostly just editing. I haven't been out shooting lately, even though the weather's been uh, okay for Chicago weather, I guess you could say. Uh, hot and humid, but at least not snowy, so <laughs> that's always good. Or rainy, but... Uh, no, been cooped up in my room doing lots of editing and uh, lots of, you know, logging, logging of data just all day. But oh. <laughs> what have you been up to? I am the same way. I started editing at uh, 730 in the morning and I just finished up about an hour before the podcast. Uh, I've got a feature length going out to reviewers next week. So I'm getting all the last bits of ADR. And when they tell you ADR... And they say automatic dialogue replacement. That is not the case. When you <laughs> record someone automatic. talking, there's nothing automatic about it going into your timeline. You have to <laughs> sync that crap up. People don't read correctly. They don't get their lines quite right. And you're there cutting and pasting and copying and moving. Unfortunately, there was an entire scene where the lava mics got some kind of crazy interference and there was hiss all over it. So all those shots had to have automatic dialogue replacement audio done. So I've been doing that. Ouch. Going crazy in the studio, working on that. It sucks. Least favorite <laughs> type of editing to do ever. Uh, also, a lot of motion graphics and stuff. But that's all I want to talk about <laughs> with that because I'm done with that. It's another time, another place. Yes. And now, if you don't have anything else, I'm going to move nope. on to the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. All right, first up, I wanted to kind of brush up on the Panasonic GH4. Uh, there's been rumors of firmware for a while, and the camerastore.tv had a pre-release version of the Panasonic GH4 firmware with V-Log. Now, it looks like it's sort of kind of officially announced. It uh, looks like we'll be getting V-Log firmware update in October. They're also going to be including that multi-focus 4K shooting mode for the GH4 in that firmware update. Devin, are you excited about V-Log? I am excited about Vlog. I mean, just the fact that uh, if it really conforms to the standard that Vlog has, I'm thinking of all the LUTs and everything else that are just going to bang up and work with it right away. So uh, it's, 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 and there's so many complaints about the log modes on the GH4 and how noisy they are and everything else. And, um, you know, but then again, this, uh, this Vlog isn't going to, fix everything uh you know everyone i know everyone's been talking about it it's been oh japan everything else oh look at this somebody got footage of it oh look at how great it is it, it doesn't it, it doesn't it's a great feature to add to a camera but it doesn't fix something that's wrong with the camera the camera's still just as good as it was before it just makes it a little easier to work with certain post-production workflows which for me is uh is important to some but i don't think it's important to a lot of people because you know a lot of people even who do put log they aren't professional colorists they just kind of get things the way they like them and that's fine for them and that works so it's one of those where i don't think that um it's necessarily crucial in order to make a gh4 an awesome product i think it's just a nice little sprinkling of extra to have you know it's not like we're trying to build a time machine here I, okay, so uh, that was my Back to the Future ringtone. Apparently, you should mute your cell phone before 
you start a podcast, that's a good idea. Do that. Um, the the thing I am top ex- tips here. Yeah, <laughs> top tips on DSLR film uh, noob. Pro work, man. You know, you go to a meeting, turn your damn cell phone off. Duh. Um, no, one of the things I'm excited about with Vlog is actually that uh, if they've conformed to the standard, you know, that's a drop in and go type of deal. You know, you can use Lot Buddy or you can use uh, Blackmagic's. Um, you know, editing software in order to just drop color corrections that you have preset in there. Also, uh, a lot of monitors have Panasonic Vlog programmed set up so you can load your LUTs onto the monitor themselves and then see kind of where your grade's going to go while you're shooting. So those are kind of cool things to have. I'm kind of interested in how they're going to implement the uh, the 4K multi-focus system on the GH4 and the two-axis uh, IS system that they gave to the GX8. Uh, both of those are kind of wacky things. The Vlog itself, I'm kind of with you. It's not super exciting for me. I, you know, I might mess around with it, but uh, I wasn't on pins and needles like thinking, man, the GH4 just hasn't been cutting it for me. If only I had Vlog, <laughs> life would be so much better. But... The image stabilization, where at 1080p, they're basically doing warp stabilization with the sensor. That's kind of cool. And that whole shooting 30 frames at 4K and then multiple focus points in order to give you depth choices for your focus in post. That's also an interesting feature that uh, uh, the GX8 has and the GH4 will soon be getting. Uh, Have you looked into either one of those at all, Devin? I, I've read like the spec sheet, like the the patent sheet or whatever they've got on the technical parts of it, and, and it's one of those where we've talked about this a few times with other cameras coming out with some of these features, where it's like, I don't see pros using it. It'd be fun. I'd use it once or twice, but I couldn't see myself being like, oh, now I can do this because I've got this. It's 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 one of those that's really cool, and I'm sure from uh, Panasonic's perspective, they're seeing it as kind of like, oh, look, we're like giving it even features you didn't think it could have and stuff like that. And I, I appreciate you know the effort that they're putting into it to make sure this uh, the lifetime of this product keeps going until there, there's a proper successor, but... It's one of those that I'd use it once or twice and then probably forget about it because I can't imagine a world where there'd be something so amazing that can only be captured or even artistically that I could think of that would be really cool to do with that kind of thing. But who knows? Maybe once I get some footage in post, I might be able to do something cool with it. But once again, that's a one-off effect. Well, the stabilization feature, though, uh, supposedly... Depend at- how well it works. I yeah, mean, it's not... They're saying it's going to be compat- or comparable to what you get out of the Olympus 5-axis stabilization system. And that is a fully motion, like, you know, gyros moving the, the monitor, the, the element around. Yeah. Whereas this is, uh, you know, basically just uh, scanning Digital. lines and doing it digitally and then incorporating that with the IS system in the lens itself. So if it's as good as the Olympus implementation, that could be a boon, but it is True. limiting you to 1080p. So, you know, there's that aspect and it's cropping in to do that. So you're not getting full resolution 1080p, you're getting crop factor 1080p, which means like you're going to be zoomed in on stuff a lot further than you would normally expect. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be good or not. I want to play with it. Maybe there's something to it. Maybe it will be really handy, but uh, I think we'll yeah. have to wait and see. I just overall, I appreciate that they are adding features and they're working on making the product better. Um, that shows that Panasonic is fully behind this product and Panasonic is doing everything they can to try to keep this product uh, a good value for their customers, um, which even includes dropping the price of their SDI adapter. 
Oh, rolling into the next thing on the list, man. So if you haven't been aware, the uh, YAGH is an adapter for the GH4 that allowed uh, both SDI outputs as well as audio interface adapting. Uh, the only issue was that there's nowhere to put batteries. So that unit wasn't very popular because you had to plug in a bunch of extra stuff in order to power it up and to power your camera up. Originally... It was priced at about the same price as the GH4, so $1,600. Bucks. Now they have a combo deal on sale for $1,999. You can get the GH4 and the YAGH SDI adapter. Devin, are you excited about this? When are people going to actually use this, man? Uh, you know, it's and people asked that when it first came out. I think with the huge price drop, it definitely makes it more approachable for people who've been on the fence. But overall, even the but okay, the even if you're on the fence, like what little item are you sitting there like, oh man, if only I had SDI connectors to my sixteen hundred dollar GH4. It's only in the pro world. You're absolutely right. It's only in the pro world. It's only people who say uh, whether say your entire you know college basketball stadium is all wired with HDSDI, and you're trying to find a way to hook up you know um, a stadium cam, or you're trying to hook up you know a backboard cam or something like that. This converts the camera that you've had sitting around so that it seamlessly injects into your system. Yeah, it needs external power. It's not something that, you know, you, you can add a battery pack and take this mobile and everything else. But um, unless you're really going to use the SDI out, there's no reason to really even have it attached. A lot of people argued the whole having XLR inputs with the phantom power and the levels right there. And almost, if I feel like if they just made that product for 300 bucks, ignored the whole SDI thing, they'd probably push a few of those units. Because I'm sure there's plenty of people who'd rather just have an integrated solution for their audio. Uh, but the ability to not have a battery uh, really hurts the, the whole idea of using a DSLR for video. And I think that um, uh, there's so few people that are going to use external recording with a Panasonic. It's a little different if you've got like the a7s or something like that because there's a lot more you gain from the external recording but in this case i only see it in like live video situations where you're doing video switching or um you know you're doing uh, whether it's a concert you're doing imag or something like that then the, it seems to put this camera from the post-production world the recording world into a live production world by giving it those professional connections that you can incorporate into these professional workflows but by itself as an independent filmmaker or somebody who shoots weddings or something like that, I don't see it adding any value for anybody. Yeah, the audio adapter portion would be an interesting device if they just had this as an actual battery unit with XLR inputs. That would have been perfect. Yeah. I would have jumped on that right away. The 4K internal recording for many things on the GH4 is more than acceptable. Uh, you know, unless you need uh, 10-bit 422 coming out of an SDI port, you know, doing quad mm -hmm. SDI, well, what? I, you know, it's not really well, for you. It's such an expensive workflow to start working with, like, you know, 10-bit um, uh, 4K and stuff like that, that I usually those budgets allow for different kinds of cameras. I'm not going to say better, but uh, your reds and like renting Alexas and stuff like that. If, you're, if your workflow requires that kind of quality, you usually aren't picking up a GH4. It may be something you add to a system that is already running all that stuff, but it's not, you know, for some of us who that's our primary camera, we go out and maybe shoot a client with is this kind of camera. That's our primary. It's not adding any features for any one of that demographic. Yeah, I don't see this as 
an easy fix for uh, uh, people in a higher end bracket where they're willing to spend, you know, eight or ten thousand dollars on a camera setup. Because if you hook this up to something, basically you're gonna have to get something like an Odyssey. So that's gonna add mm-hmm. two to three grand plus your licensing fees uh, for 4K recording internally. So now you're up to four grand on top of the extra adapter on top of the camera, mm-hmm. and then the power pack. So you're gonna, you know, need Vlox or whatever in order to power this thing up. You're looking at the investment for, you know, a Sony FS7 by the time you get to that point. And like you said, yeah, <laughs> what, does it make sense to have like seven things or to have one thing? I, you know, I, I wouldn't go buy like 20 different parts in order to build a camera from scratch if I had the opportunity to just like spend 10 grand and get the thing I need anyway and have it all in one package. So I don't know. It's I, cool I that they're like, dropping well, the price. I feel like them dropping the price, too. It's probably because they're not moving units. It's probably because they're trying to uh, just get stuff out. But I could see it for some people. Uh, and this is a super narrow uh, demographic, but some people who work in professional video and they have this camera on the side and they kind of use it as a B cam and stuff like that, or, you know, they maybe just have it because, you know, it's their own personal camera and they work for a company and this provides an opportunity for them to take their own personal camera and go, oh, I can get a second shot of this. Oh, I could attach this here. Say like it's a live music event. Oh, I could put this up by the uh, the monitor on the stage so it's shooting up on the, uh, you know, singer or something like that. It allows you to put a tiny camera in these kind of places. But for purpose built like that, you'd go with a black magic. If you were buying a system to do that right now, you would just go get a black magic that has the HDSDI out. It's tiny, whatever. And you hook it up and you run it that way. In this situation, it's like, I already have a GH4 for 500 more bucks. I can make it do this. And like I said, there's very few people who are kind of in that environment. It's definitely not something you'd set out saying, I will use this camera for this purpose because there's better options out there. But I guess it's kind of glue if you're like, I already bought this camera. I could just buy this to link the two together, which isn't a great place for your product to exist. It's just kind of like glue when there's actually better products out there for the purpose. Well, when there's uh, when you look at it as a tiny camera example, I mean, as soon as you start adding this on, you're not really in the tiny camera category. I would think if you're going to just like station a small camera that's cheap somewhere, you know, the new uh, Blackmagic Studio cameras, um, the mm-hmm. camera that I'm about to transition to, which is... Is that uh, Z camera E1 I signed up for on the Kickstarter. Uh, those are all very small, very tiny. Uh, they also have that uh, control interface now with, uh, uh, what is it? I think it's like a DB9 connector or something like that that you can mm-hmm. plug into it and actually yeah. remote operate it using the same uh, control interface and type that you use for like lighting systems. So that's an interesting extra approach that would make it even easier and it has internal recording. So you don't necessarily even need to take advantage of the mini SDI ports coming out of something like that. You can just record in camera and pull your memory card at the end of the right. shoot because yep. honestly, the whole thing is going to be from that particular point of view. Like right? I said, unless, unless you need it live, unless there's a reason for live, I don't see much of a reason to have HD SDI out. And you bring up that uh, that Z camera uh, E1. Uh, what's the uh, what's the early buyer on that? I'm sure they're sold out by now because they seem pretty popular in Kickstarter. Okay, so I, I talked about this with Mitch, and I, I wanted to bring it up with you because I was very interested in this camera. We've kind of seen this like rumored for a long time. It's shown up, um, you know, in news feeds and stuff like that as something that's coming down the road. Uh, but now it's available for pre-order on Kickstarter. Uh, I got in at the 4.99 level. Uh, there was like 25 wow. of those available. Then it went up to like 5.50 and. And there, I think there were 30 of those available. Those sold, 
and now the next level up is the full full fledged price, which I think is six ninety nine. So you can get yeah. still get in on this for around six hundred bucks. Um, they do charge you shipping, so there's some there are costs there. They're expecting it to be hitting the market uh, sometime in November, so it, fairly soon we're going to see this pretty fast. And what's really interesting about this, and I, I don't know how much you've read about this, Devin. I've got the specs in the show mm-hmm. notes, but. Uh, Panasonic has worked with these guys in order to incorporate their AF system into this little camera. So even though it's not a full-fledged, uh, you know, photography tool, uh, you do have a really good AF system inside of this guy. Uh, Panasonic is providing the 16 megapixel sensor for this, so you have pretty much the same capabilities available in like the G7 or the GH4. Uh, they did scale back some of the uh, frame rates and availability in 4K and UHD, so keep that in mind. But still, the price and full autofocus it's even got a what 320 by uh, uh, 240 pixel screen on the back so probably better than the backpack on the gopro yeah yeah you can at least frame it i it's kind of nuts because um well first off it's kickstarter and you're the one who you're the one who always says you've gotten burned so many times and everything else so it is surprising to hear you uh, jump on board with something like this but it does truly seem to be different than a lot of stuff out there because uh, if their autofocus system performs like they say it does, this will be the only small camera that can autofocus. You think of Blackmagic's offering so far. I haven't seen a lot of people get their hands on the new super small ones, but like the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera, they did some updates with that, but that still doesn't autofocus. No one runs that in autofocus because it's pretty bad. And so if they've got a small sensor with low light uh, capabilities or just you know very low noise profile, uh, as well as having autofocus, those are like three big things that GoPro hasn't hit because they don't have interchangeable lenses or low-light performance. Um, and it's something that the Blackmagic hasn't hit because Blackmagic isn't known for low-light performance either, and their autofocus is also kind of weak right now. So it, it really is – it seems well thought out that they know exactly what's missing from the small camera market, and they're uh, doing their best to try to perform it. I'm waiting to see more footage. Um, I'd like to see like raw footage straight off the card because the Kickstarter videos are so compressed. It's hard to really see what you get out there. But uh, so far, you know, it tickled me fancy. I think it's so far looking really great. They do have uh, footage available for download. I believe there's some links in their question and answer portion of the Kickstarter. Uh, the other thing to note, and you did mention GoPro, is that uh, the the engineer in charge of this project was a former GoPro engineer that was in charge of their de- design and product uh, update cycle. So he kind of, it sounds like from just uh, reading interviews with him, he kind of got sick of GoPro not jumping to a new type of camera and still sort of working off of platform. And that's what right. drove him to this. And it's really encouraging to see that this is an off-the-shelf uh, Panasonic MN34-230 um, uh, sensor system on here. So, you know, that's the one that's been in all of Panasonic's latest Micro Four Thirds releases. It's well-known. It's it's a good sensor. It's good to 1600 ISO. Uh, you know, you're not going to have the same, like, question marks that you get with Blackmagic cameras. You know, it probably won't start on fire, for example. Or, it, you know, <laughs> it uh, won't have the crazy purple blockout problems or, you know, other filter issues that have plagued these cameras in the past and it's half the price um i normally don't jump in on kickstarters (laughs) at all but this product has already been out at nab people have got their hands on it been able to mess around with it Uh, i i talked with mitch quite a bit about it because he met and interviewed the guys that uh are working on this and he got to play around with it and 
after talking to him, he's actually, I owe him a good solid there because he emailed me right away. He's like, hey, their Kickstarter's going up uh, in about 15 minutes. And so I hopped over there and got on. And as soon as the first news articles went out on it, like, you know, all the early bird specials were sold out. So I'm interested to see how this turns out. This may be a replacement for the Olympus Air that I was previously on pre-order for. I still am on pre-order, right. actually. But uh, Yeah, it is still pre-order for you, huh? I thought they were... Uh, I thought it was like this week or last week they were going to start shipping them. Yeah, they were what supposed the to start shipping uh, last week, and they pushed it back, so it probably won't be shipping until the beginning of next month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that gets delayed too much further, it may just be a cancel button and <laughs> knock that out, you know. But th- that's the thing. So look at this. Now, think about the Olympus Air. What do you get out of that? Well, you get 1080p shooting. You get an M43 sensor from Olympus. You don't have any image stabilization. Uh, AF is is laggy because it's all done fly-by-wire via an HTML interface to your phone. Uh, Wi-Fi <laughs> isn't exactly the best. Whereas this guy, it does have those controls as well, but it just has straight Bluetooth as well as its own screen and interface system. So... You don't have to necessarily rely on uh, your phone alone to operate this thing, and it's still in that same form factor where it's basically just an M43 sensor on a little tiny Mm -hmm. box, and that's it. So for me, man, this is like throw your GoPros down the sink, put them in a blender, (laughs) and use these from now on, especially at the price. You know, look at a a Hero 4 Black Edition. What's that run? About what, $499, $399? Yeah, yeah, definitely five hundred, about four ninety nine. Yeah. yeah, so for a hundred and some change more, you can move up to a micro four third sensor, better low light performance. Uh, it has a external microphone input. It has uh, photography capabilities. Shoots four K, and now you can change out and choose whatever lens you want with full lens control. It's not like the rib cage for the GoPro where you put it on and then you're like, you know, working with these C mount lenses trying to screw around <laughs> the stuff and like get your focus. No, this is a full fledged camera in a tiny tiny little box i think that says a lot i think that says a lot about uh the company's ideologies in general because uh the as we discussed before the last gopro that they came out with um the session was really for people out having fun doing extreme sports and it's a great product for that and it works for that but for filmmakers it didn't offer anything really new or special besides a slightly smaller size meanwhile this comes out which provides even more stuff that people have been begging for and asking for and i think gopro uh whether for the right or wrong reasons has been largely ignoring because they go that's not what we build cameras for we don't build cameras for filmmakers who want to put on their own lenses and mess with all the settings and everything else we build it for surfers to go out there and record themselves surfing so uh i I think it says a lot and i'm very behind this i'm not sure if i'm going to pull the trigger yet um i'd love to play with one though i'd love to get my hands on one because this does look fascinating yeah and the other thing to think about with something like this is uh is gimbals. So, uh, you know, I've had this guy right here torturing my brain for about a month now. (laughs) And like, I've got the Canon uh, EOS M mounted to it because it's a fairly light, small camera. This is even lighter and smaller and probably even easier to balance because it's symmetrical. So imagine being able to grab one of those, throw it on here and balance really fast as opposed to like dinking around with all the different stuff that it requires. There's like 18 freaking screws on this thing, man. I I don't, I'm kind of sort of done with the whole gimbal thing after this experience so much of no, a hassle. You, you make such a good point. You make such a good point because um, with it being centered and everything else, the only thing you'd really have to do with this camera to get it balanced would usually just be to aft. To yep. do that forward and backward 
um, to get that all dialed in. So uh, especially, I mean, this really seems lined up for quadcopters. I think they bundle some of them with the 14 millimeter Panasonic or 12 millimeter Panasonic pancake lens. Yep. Uh, so it, it looks like that's exactly the market they're going for. Gimbals is right on that market too. And that brings the entry price for someone who wants a gimbal look, uh, who aren't frustrated like you with trying to program one yet, who haven't learned, uh, you know, the, the pains of running a gimbal. Uh, it makes it perfect for them because they can get a really light one. Like, um, was it? I think, uh, Dave Dugdale for a while was showing some of those handheld gimbals with super light, super small cameras and stuff like that. I, I've seen people talk about those, and those seem light enough that it could work on one of those handheld gimbals rather than the big rigs that you normally put your GH3 on. Yeah, the single, the single-handed the uh, single gimbals are pretty good for like GoPros and things in that weight class, but you start going above that, and it, it can be an issue because the lens will outweigh the motor for that particular axis. Yeah. Uh, the other thing to think about with the gimbals, and I didn't start thinking about this until i actually had to operate one for a little while uh your arms get sore as heck <laughs> um i end up a lot of times actually reversing it so that i can hold it closer to my chest because it's easier right. to keep your hands like this than it is to hold them out here like this for a long period of time now thankfully or not thankfully depending on your opinions the batteries <laughs> don't last long enough to like completely drain your arm strength uh so you just plan your shots you shoot them really quick and then you're done but still man my this portion of my arm right here look at that i mean like i'm i've never had definition and now like you can almost see like a little bit of muscle right there growing in it's, showing off his guns yeah you know right it, I, I, I couldn't but, believe it. Like my arms were like I'm literally <laughs> growing like out of my shirt now. It's it's crazy. Like I've got muscles again. It's like I'm in high school or something. Well, you know what else? You can also use uh, speed boosters with that too. Oh, look at this guy today transitioning <laughs> to everything. All right, the next thing up on the list here is actually yet another speed booster. So we had the release of, or the announcement of the 6.4X or 0.64X speed booster. This is the Speed Booster Ultra. It's still a 0.71 magnification <laughs> format. So you're not getting anything over the older speed booster that I'm holding up right here, the Mark IV version. But what you are getting now is they're going to be adding af to the system uh af from speed booster is still in the infant stages uh, early reports say that it's hit or miss and sometimes it's fast sometimes it's excruciatingly slow uh they don't say to rely on it as a photography tool yet uh they also said and this is interesting Devin. maybe you can comment a little bit mm -hmm. more on this since you were the one who transitioned uh that <laughs> there's going to be a firmware update for the older versions that will also add this feature so if that's the case why move to the ultra version? What makes it more, uh, you know, attractive than the previous generation of 0.71 uh, magnification Metabones adapters? You know, I couldn't really find it. I couldn't really find a reason why, um, other than the fact that it pre-ships with software and you don't have to update it. And sometimes it's a problem for some people um, updating software. Uh, but I don't think uh, Metabones, that would be the only reason. It could be that they've got slightly faster, um, uh, a slightly faster chip in there that's going to help with that autofocus because I feel like if the autofocus speed could have been fixed with firmware, they would have done it by now because there's enough competition in the marketplace that they should have by now. And um, I think that uh, there might actually be a speed difference between these two. But so far, I'm not seeing anything that states one way or the other. I've been, Maybe you know something. Uh, well, no, I okay, that's why I threw it at you, because I was like, man, <laughs> I looked over all the specs, and I looked over everything else, and I'm like, wait a minute, what's, what? 
What's the right? Okay, so I'm gonna go buy a new one. What? I, yeah, I don't, I don't understand. And they're like, well, it'll have autofocus. And then in the same release, they're like, well, we're gonna add autofocus to all the old units. Like, well, okay. Then what does this have that would drive me to move forward versus the other ones? And the only thing I could find is that it says uh, full compatibility with all Micro Four Thirds camera bodies. So if you look at the release, and I think we talked about this when they announced their uh, 0.64x magnification uh, adapter, that one is specifically labeled as a GH4 compatible unit, but the this one is actually labeled as uh, compatible with all Micro Four Thirds adapters. So our cameras, excuse me. So maybe there's something in the firmware, maybe the way it's built, it might interfere with certain types of lenses or uh, sensor setups. I'm not really 100% sure. And of course, Metabones being an awesome company that they are, uh, has uh, very sparse literature on any of this stuff. And it vaguely describes what's going on with half of these things. So it's pretty hard to pick out what the hell is the difference. I mean, you find anything while you're searching? I see your eyes scanning no, back and no. forth. Yeah, because I'm rereading it, and I'm not seeing anything. The best I can guess is that somebody left out, possibly, uh, that they've got a faster chip in it, and that even though the other autofocus systems will be improved, they won't have the same speed as the Ultra. But why wouldn't they market that then and say, this will be a faster autofocus system? I, I don't quite understand it. They put Ultra in yellow font, on the adapter itself, and I don't really know why. <laughs> why do you buy the new one? You buy it because it says Ultra on it. Obviously, it is the best one because it is the Obviously. Ultra version. They're using the SanDisk <laughs> form of labeling, going from extreme to ultimate this to one's ultra. ultra. This one's extreme. This one's extremely Ultra. <laughs> <laughs> what does that even mean? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, that's oh. actually an interesting point. Uh, combining a speed booster with something like that uh, Zcam E is a <laughs> fairly nice way to go. That would give you all uh, all your Canon lenses available with like that. Uh, you know, everybody and knows if the autofocus works. Because not only can you throw your Canon lenses on there, if the autofocus system starts working appropriately during video mode, you could have some autofocusing if you're on a gimbal or something like that. That uh, you know, you can maybe uh, finagle and work into. So. All, all things barred, it, it just opens up possibilities. And they say low light, um, and I've seen a few tests, but I haven't seen tests in really stressful conditions. So adding more light to the sensor is never a bad thing, uh, especially with these smaller sensors trying to get them to not look noisy. Yeah, the low light demonstration was like, here's Vegas. And if you've yeah. ever been to Vegas, there's plenty of light <laughs> around at night. So yeah. it's not exactly an extreme so, dark situation to compare no, things and with. And I'm not expecting miracles from uh, the Z camera. But, um, hey, if it's better than, you know, say a GoPro or maybe a Black Mod, uh, Blackmagic Pocket Cinema camera, uh, then that's a good that, – that's a strong low-light camera in my book. Now, we've talked about new cameras. Let's go back to the 90s and revisit a camera that we all know and love, the Panasonic DVX 200. Hey, that's a new yeah. number. Wait a minute. What's going on here? Uh, okay, so for those of you not familiar, uh, Panasonic announced at at uh, NAB this year that they were going to be bringing some of the old cameras back, uh, basically that ENG style uh, of zoom lens built in. Uh, they're going to give these things uh, M4 or a Micro Four Thirds sensor. They're going to give it a good zoom range. I believe this guy has a zoom range of somewhere between uh, 28 and 365 millimeters. It's F2.8 to F4.5. 
it records in MOV or MP4 containers, and it has all of the regular features, including slow motion, uh, dual SD card slots, and HDMI and SDI outputs. But no pricing at all. People seem to be sort of excited about it, but is that just nostalgia for the camera that got a lot of us started, Devin? Yeah, absolutely. Um, nothing on this rap sheet seems uh, particularly Stunning. fantastic or outstanding. And uh, and for me, it's uh, it really looks like a lot of that prosumer market. It's kind of the same stuff. We we even see very similar specs, maybe not the 120 FPS in things like a JVC um, and other uh, you know I don't know what you call. It. I guess I I call it prosumer because I don't know what to call that. Uh, ergonomic solution there it's not a handy cam it's not no it'd be like eng i think because you know this is sort of like right at the level of the old school like april o'neill run around you know (laughs) right sure yeah you could call eng i'm used to eng being like large shoulder mount uh panasonic and sony cameras so i've got a different condemnation in my head that's why i wouldn't say that but yeah it's it falls in line with all of those it looks like a great update i think you know panasonic's already made a few of these um it's and what was it? I think uh, Sony has made a few of these as well. There doesn't seem to be anything that makes this one stand out over the other ones. And that's kind of most of this this kind of camera here, whatever we want to call it, prosumer, ENG, whatever. Um, they all just seem very similar uh, because they're big enough to have all the features, but they aren't expensive enough to usually have like interchangeable lenses and stuff. So you know maybe one's a little better at low light one's a little better at this one a little better at that but it's just everything's on the margins i feel like when i look at all these camera reviews as opposed to dslrs are so small and minimal that there's usually large differences like if it has 4k if it has amazing low light there's big reasons why you choose one over the other and when you get to the bigger cameras uh like say it's your reds or something like that you're usually you're renting them and it's usually just whatever you need for the job is you know whether you need better low light or you like the color profile the alexa or whatever else so in this situation this uh it's cool that they've come out with it and i can see it just getting bought up by everyone who's uh been in the wedding business for more than eight years or ten years if they can stomach that uh but it's one of those where i i don't see it useful for a lot of people maybe some starting out uh yeah, like you said, ENG, like journalists, uh, you know, people beginning to do reporting and stuff like that. But then again, there's a bazillion other 4K cameras in this uh, range, and we haven't seen a price yet. If they came with a really aggressive price, I think most of those other ones are over two grand. If they came in with a really aggressive price under two grand, I could see this being very popular and like kind of becoming another DVX100B. But right now, it just looks to me like, eh, I've seen all this before. What's the part that makes it different? And there's usually not a lot that makes any of these different. Well, and I brought up uh, nostalgia for a reason. The <laughs> college market is probably where I see this being used quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Um, JVC released recently uh, that, uh, what is it, 3000 or $4,000 camera, pretty much in the same form factor as this. It didn't have great low light capabilities. Uh, Panasonic is throwing in a micro four-thirds sensor, so we'll get a little bit better low light. But colleges love to buy up like my first camera cameras that are all in one, you know, that's why the GH one way back in the day and the XL one were so popular is because you could just hand students that camera, you know, basically give them a quick rundown of how to hit record and point it at something and start shooting. And this has a built in mic as well as XLR inputs. If you want to yeah. get a little bit fancier, it has a 1080p screen, it shoots 4k. So for journalism at that caliber, I mean, 
You imagine no, no, the school orders like right. 10 of these and then you go to the library and you lease them out when you need to do projects or you need mm-hmm. to go interview other students or maybe you're even generating content for the school, you know, uh, video stream or whatever. And it's did, 4K. So I didn't think about it until you said my first camera. But you bring up a good point. This is the only camera uh, really, video camera-wise, that has a fully automatic setting. I mean, DSLRs do. They aren't great at it. They usually don't have uh, great audio, so usually you look for external audio options. But to get a DSLR to shoot good, you usually got to have a little bit of extra equipment and a little bit of extra experience. And if you're doing something big, like an FS7 or something like that, you got to have a lot of experience because there's no way that you spend that much money to run everything in full auto. But this is a camera that looks pretty uh, – these kind of cameras, Joe, look pretty damn good – when you throw them in full auto and literally the person doesn't need to know anything other than where to shoot and where to hit record. And the audio usually turns out. Okay. The white balance turns out. Okay. And the focus is usually on point. So as a first camera, you're right for schools and everything else. I could definitely see this being, you know, where schools go, Oh, our, we need to advertise that our film program or our news program is 4k now. So they buy a string of these to upgrade everything to 4k. Well, and the other thing to think about public access. Yeah. Well, the other thing to think about too, with this is, uh, you know, say you're a corporation and you're going to be doing lectures with four people or something like that on stage. And you don't want to do everything completely out of the business. You want to do it in house. You buy like three Mm -hmm. or four of these, you get a switcher, you run SDI out from each one of these, you feed it into, you know, a, a recording unit. And then basically you go from there as like, okay, Hey, we got this conference. we got it going on. We'll just use this in a PA system and we're good to go. And, you know, if these are priced right, you could set up a package like that for maybe 15000 And you don't have to hire someone who's extremely uh, versed in, in, yeah, yeah, exactly, experience. in running these. You're like, okay, guys, here's your camera. It's already on a tripod. Point it over there. Make sure it's in focus and hit this button, you know, to activate it. We'll give you, like, a little walkie-talkie and say, all right, guys, you know, go. And, mm-hmm. and that's the type of thing that you can do with this. Uh, the other thing is, uh, again, for businesses, a, a lot of businesses like to have a camera for video around to do quick interviews and audio failings, all the other adapters, the learning curve Mm -hmm. for using that. Uh, You can either, A, go find an intern that has a DSLR and try and trick him into filming for you, or you can get something like this and you can hand this to Judy the secretary and say, all right, here's your camera. Uh, Go ahead and cover (laughs) the company party. You know, don't get anything too embarrassing, Judy, and then we'll be good to go, you know? (laughs) You know what? No, you you bring up a good point with businesses. It's like the equivalent of those uh, audio systems i'm sure you're familiar with um where uh they have built-in wireless um they have um like feedback cancellation and automatic tuning and level control and it's just this like one new board that controls everything and anyone can pick up the mic turn it on and don't need an audio operator and this is like the camera version of that you can turn it on you don't need an expert and you can just use it okay So, so this is a complete aside but have you ever seen that fender uh suitcase pa so yes, it's yes, like I it's have. a big gray suitcase with a handle in the middle and you unbutton two clasps and out comes the two speakers for your PA system. They have like a built-in stand that you can set down and then it just has like a power button and an XLR input. And then you plug it in, you hit the power and you like turn a knob. And after that, it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's supposed to be completely dummy proof. You can't screw up with it. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, surely there is a way to screw up with it, but it's meant specifically for like that guy who has to give a speech in front of 
like 20 of his peers or, you know, that congratulations, right. Morty, for doing a great job at 20 years <laughs> of service. We're going to give you this card right here, you know. So yeah, there are needs for that sort of thing. And, you know, Panasonic and JVC both, they wouldn't be releasing cameras like this unless they thought there was a purpose for it. And you look at this, too. Uh, also think about the XC10 from Canon. You know, what is that? That's basically mm-hmm. this sort of setup as well. Only, you know, maybe a one inch sensor, I think, is on that unit as opposed to a micro four thirds sensor. So, you know, Canon obviously thinks that there's a market for some kind of 4K all in one XLR adapter shooter. Panasonic's releasing mm-hmm. one, JVC. There must be a fairly decent market for this sort of thing still out there. And I mean, to be honest, uh, going and working with uh, businesses on a regular basis, you will run into the AV guy that does have something like this in his toolkit, in his arsenal, as like the, hey, go film this really quick for me. And it's the stuff that's just for internal release or whatever. It's not stuff that's going to be mm-hmm. going and, out as press releases And schools releases and universities. Um, I've been to a few um, uh, large uh, you know, uh, stadium school, like in-house uh, theaters and stuff like that, where the back of the AV room – they just buy one of these because, hey, uh, we ne- might need a video camera for this. If something comes up where they're like, oh, we need to record this. Well, we could hire somebody. It would cost this much. We could buy a camera and have one of our AV students just record it. So they just buy the camera. So they- there's always one of these that's sitting in the back of an AV closet. So people definitely buy them, um, even though they, uh, you know, some art- artists, uh, DPs may find them um, restricting in some ways. Uh, there's still, I think, definitely a market. And you're right. I, you brought up the Canon thing. That is basically Canon's version of one of these things. It's a little bit smaller, uh, you know, or for better or for worse. It basically is the same thing. It's an all-automatic handy cam that you just turn on and hit record. All automatic, man. That is the wave <laughs> of the future. Let me tell you right now, I'm, I'm selling it. Let's go get some. Now, speaking of selling stuff here, I want to show this off because uh, we found this on the lovely internet here the oh other day. Goodness. Really? Look at this right here. Look at this guy. Look at him. He's right there on the front page holding his logger's lunchbox. Devin, I kind of been wanting to get a follow-up for you on the logger's lunchbox, and this is the perfect opportunity to tease you a little bit while asking you how that thing is going, man. Where are you at with the logger's lunchbox? Um, I've been a big fan. I have not yet uh, got the V-mount that I've wanted to get. To be honest, I haven't really had battery problems. Having uh, one of these uh, Sony... um, uh, BUP 60s or whatever. If I've got that wrong, I've got that wrong. BPU 60s is um, uh, really does last. I found for like my GH3 as well as uh, wireless audio packs and stuff like that. Probably gives me like four hours, which is mostly of what I need. Uh, the big thing that they just shipped out actually was a new handle, uh, which they promised a lot of people. Which um, apologize again for the people who listen to the audio version of the podcast because I'm going to do a visual demonstration here, but uh, they went ahead and added a- actual very serious bracket to this with a pull pin. Okay. So you can actually pull the pin out, and then um, they've got three positions, but you can mount it upside down too. So it's kind of like you got six if you're willing to unmount it and remount it, uh, which I know sounds weird. I'm going to get more pictures of it and stuff like that. But uh, this guy here, if you look sideways, it's just a big chunk of drilled, probably aluminum is what I'm guessing. Uh, and it's exactly what I'm looking for because I can then take the entire uh, rig and hold it by that one handle. And I feel completely comfortable doing that. So it makes it a lot easier to pick up and off the shoulder. It's kind of exactly what I was looking for. When they're like, it's really rugged, I'm like, 
Yes, and it should be. When their front handle swivels on you, you're like, I don't feel like I could pick this up without grabbing the top handle and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't feel easy to manhandle like an ENG camera. Uh, and this definitely went ahead and fixed that, as well as they also sent me out free audio adapters because for people with a GH3 or GH4, they shipped out the wrong audio adapter. So I appreciate that. It shows that they're definitely responding to um, people who are using their rigs. Um, I would like to get a new top uh, handle, uh, one that's got a few more mount options and stuff like that. They're working on that. I don't know how far they are with it. So far for me personally using it though, uh, it's not as front heavy because I, I roll it really back and I use an EVF. If I didn't have an EVF, it probably would feel pretty front heavy to me because I'd have to push the camera forward to see the screen. Uh, like I said, they've said a V-mount would probably fix that and I'll figure that out when I finally get my V-mount battery back from a buddy of mine and I go ahead and get the mounting option for that. But for all intents, it seems to serve its purpose. Uh, once again, it still seems a little heavy. Uh, it, I don't really notice as much of a balancing problem as I thought at first, but it's, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's still a little heavy. But all things considered, uh, it, it does the purpose it's supposed to. And so far, the audio has been really great. I haven't done, like, the proper calibration test because I haven't used it for a client yet. As soon as I get those tests done, and I'll probably start using it with a few clients too, I got to upload those and I got a ton of stuff I need to review on that. It's been a busy week of work for me for now, this past week. So how do you feel about the audio unit on there? Have you been messing around with that at all? Does it sound yeah. good? Like, is it, is it high quality? I mean, I know they talked a lot about the circuitry they're going to be yeah. using in there and like how they would isolate the traces and keep things apart and whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, does it stand it, up to, to good criticism? It's, it's like I said, uh, there's a few listening tests I want to do right now. I know it's miles ahead of um of an h4n uh, i like to do that as a benchmark even if it's not a very good benchmark because the h4n is pretty noisy uh it's miles ahead of an h4n so it's definitely better than that i i i want to compare it to some of the older files i've recorded with um the irig using that as an adapter following one of your tutorials that i saw online using an irig as an adapter for uh, xlr straight into my gh3 i want to kind of compare it with that see how the gh3 records it as well as well as just pump that audio straight through that into a proper DAC, not even necessarily a camera, just to try to get the best recordings I can. And they talk about isolating it. I really want to put that to the test by plugging everything I can into the power bank, all kinds of weird Chinese video monitors and stuff like that into the power banks and see if they have any influence on the audio. Because you never know when something like that's going to surprise you. You're out on a shoot, you're like, oh, I'll plug in this video monitor. And then because of the power system, it's then causing interference on the audio channel. So there's a bunch of stuff like that that I want to do and really put it to the test. Like I said, I've got probably about half of the testing done. I have a, like a third of like kind of like the article or so, if you call it that, written. I just haven't finished it yet because I've been really busy. So, uh, But it's coming soon. I'm just really glad to see the handle. The handle has been uh, such a godsend. I was hoping for this originally when they first gave out the product. Um, I don't know why they didn't. But I'm at least happy to see them for free to all their backers go ahead and fix that for them and send them out a proper handle that it, it, it may jiggle a bit, but it doesn't make noise and it still feels secure to me, even if there is a bit of slop in it. So for it kind of being a quick fix, because I know they're still developing the product and they're working on it, for me, it's, it's good enough for me uh, to at least make it so it's more usable and I'm willing to take it out with a client. All right, man. That was great. I'm, <laughs> I'm interested to hear more. I know article writing is... Yeah. It takes a lot of time. Um, in fact, um, my stuff has been 
pretty scarce over the last like month and a half or so because uh, I've been editing every night, morning and weekend. For <laughs> you've just been a troll in a cave. Oh my god! <laughs> with an editing. So like the only time I get to go out and actually shoot something is when I go to work. When I get off work, I have to edit <laughs> all the time. Uh, I don't normally have to do editing at work, so it's like going backwards in the uh, you know levels I used to be shooting, and now I'm editing. Great. Um, okay. Speaking of editing, and I kind of want to roll into this because you added this to the timeline or the the show notes here. FX timelines can now be imported. What what is this yes. uh, frame okay, IO? So, Tell me more. Yeah, frame IO. We talked about this probably two months ago, maybe. Uh, I wrote a short article comparing all the ways that you can send footage to a client and get criticisms back on it from the client. Um, and Frame.io is one of those that I use, but because of uh, you know pricing or whatever, I decided not to go with. But they made a pretty major update that I haven't seen any of the other ones uh, come out with, which is kind of why I wanted to talk about it. Uh, there is um, uh, there is one of them. Let me look at the name right here. Uh, Remark HQ that you can download notes as a project file, so you can line it up on your timeline, which is kind of nice. But Frame.io is allowing the other direction where if you use Final Cut X, which I don't, but if you use Final Cut Pro X, it's adding options where you can download their app from the App Store and upload your timeline or selected clips or whatever you want uh, to their service. So it's one of those that I just mentioned because I haven't seen this on any other of these services where you send footage to clients and you get comments back. And it seems really innovative, and I would love to see uh, more of these services offer that kind of stuff for Premiere and more editing options. And it may, you know, if they had it for Premiere, I would take a second look at the software and seriously considering putting down money because something like that that can kind of work in the background and automatically, like I can be like, hey, send this up to here, and the client automatically gets notified because they're on the project and everything else. That saves me five minutes of work after I'm done rendering something of uploading it, sending an email, and everything else that I normally do with this stuff. So... I just I mention it because some people may be of that, you know, may find this is the exact feature I'm looking for. Now, have you used Adobe's implementation of their cloud storage for Premiere and After Effects? Because that seems like sort of the solution that you're looking for. If you want Premiere files, uh, you can set up a sync folder and it'll send it there and you can have notifications sent out for various items. You can share via uh, Adobe's service to other people uh, who can open it up in their Adobe accounts and like look at it online as well as like download it and open it in their I Premiere files. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, I actually use the Adobe cloud services to make backups. And if you don't, uh, I suggest you you do. There's an option inside of the Creative Cloud settings where, along with saying like, oh, save up, uh, auto save every seven minutes, every 15 minutes, whatever you set, you can also say, push this up to the Adobe Cloud. So even if something happens and the project files become corrupt somehow, or the flash drive that you are using becomes corrupt, uh, those project files are still up in the cloud. And if you still have a backup of your of raw original files, which you should, you can put the two together and remake something after a total hard drive catastrophe. So I enable that option because the project files are tiny and you can throw millions up there before you'll fill up with space. As for using it as a delivery method, I don't because I want something easier on my clients where they click a link, they don't have to sign in, they can just type a name and then start commenting on the video and start watching the video. Adobe like wants some kind of account, there's like hoops you jump through. It's kind of like the first time I was trying to use uh, Google Drive where if somebody wasn't signed into Google and I sent them a Drive link, it would just show up. But if they were signed into Google and they clicked on my Drive link, it would say, would you like to sign up for Drive? It's little things like that that I really hate uh, <laughs> that some companies jump into uh, to try to get people onto their service. So 
that's why I haven't used Adobe. Adobe does have some great collaboration tools if you're working with uh, other people editing and stuff like that. And like I said, it is absolutely the best backup tool because it's completely automatic. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to save it in a certain folder. My Premiere project files will just save to the cloud simultaneously, and that's good enough for me. So I had a client uh, a couple months ago, and they considered themselves to be fairly technologically savvy. And they mm-hmm. were like, hey, can you send me my files in uh, split raw files or um, RAR files in email <laughs> format? I'm like, what? Yeah. They're like, yeah, um, I want you to go ahead and I want you to use WinRAR to separate this large video project WinRAR. into like seven different, you know, count one through seven files and then email each one of them to me so that I have them backed up. And I was like, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm new to this. I haven't worked with you in a while, but uh, how would you <laughs> feel about uh, using Google Drive in order to download it? And they're like, you could do that? And I was like, yes, it's Uh-oh. very simple. And <laughs> so I sent them a link and they clicked on it. And they're like, wow, I've been doing it like this for like the last 10 years. And this is amazing. Like, I'm never going to do that again. And it's like, WinRAR? <laughs> really? WinRAR? WinRAR. Wow. Man, I haven't heard WinRAR forever. That's... <laughs> I mean, I do you, keep. You, you get a, you get a mindset about a person when they bring up WinZip in their workflow. Yeah, like, yeah, we use WinZip here. <laughs> you get an idea for what you're getting yourself into. Um, but yeah, no, you're right. There was a time where that's how you did things. You, uh, you use WinRAR. You say take this big folder and split it into, you know, uh, 15 megabyte files. And oh my gosh. Uh, things have certainly gotten easier for moving around large video files, but yeah. And I'm sure <laughs> the guy funny. was really good at his stuff, like probably eight mm-hmm. or nine years ago and just had never bothered to update on like what's out on the market, but it was just interesting, mm-hmm. caught me off guard. And so I had to go <laughs> dig around in my email and find my license for WinRAR so I could actually download a copy, install it and use it for something. Uh, you know, <laughs> your license is perpetual. So if you pay for it once, I bought it probably back right. in the late nineties, 30 bucks. I mean, it's still out there. You can still get it. And it does do a good job of zipping stuff up. So, you know, if, I guess if you do want to create zip files and you don't want to use uh, a standard uh, Windows zip that's built into your operating system, you know, WinRAR is kind of cool, I guess. Well, if I could mention too real quick, uh, if somebody's searching for something free, there's a program out there called 7-Zip that I really like using. It'll zip. It'll RAR. It'll also use a format called 7-Zip, which I think is built off of the Linux like a uh, uh, biz or whatever compression that they've got going on for that their tarball thing yeah and it, it labels your files as like 7p dot 7p or something like that isn't that i think i think it, it labels them as like 7z 7z what, yeah like yeah. 7z but but that one program will also open up extract uh and everything else my the reason why i love it is because like the renoir functionality i can right click on an archive and say uncompressed to the folder that's the same name as the file So when I get a bunch of them, it's really easy to just select all of them at once, right-click the entire group and say, extract to individual folders. And it'll take each file and dump it into its own individual folder. So it makes unzipping and zipping really easy on a Windows computer. So as well as being able, you can tell it to, hey, I want to make a RAR that's 15 megabytes big and split it (laughs) into several files. You can do that on there too. So uh, but that's my pick. That's what I like using for it. Uh, if anyone out there is looking for a free tool for zipping and unzipping. Now, one other thing, um, while we're talking about file management, and this is sort of getting extra nerdy, um, <laughs> is, is labeling your files in a way with like metadata tags and stuff like that, that you can actually find stuff and figure out what clip you're on. Um, I've been editing this feature length for quite a while now and I'm just about done, but I found throughout the process that there were times that I wish I had used a better label 
on each of my clips. And I was talking to a PA that I work with on a regular basis, and he's like, you know, why don't you set up Lightroom to import your video footage? And I was like, wait, what? You know, because I use Lightroom for, you know, photos. But he's he's like, no, mm-hmm. you can you can type in all your metadata information. You can set Lightroom up to separate out your videos into their own particular folder as opposed to mixing them in with stuff. And you can set rules and uh, stipulations for the video footage so that it date stamps them, puts them into the, a, a date and time folder, uh, organizes them by the time they were shot, puts them together with other cards so that they're all in the same folder in time stamped order and metadata them with whatever med tags you give as you download them so someone if you've done that before uh, you know send me some info on that because i really want to give that a go i've i've used mm-hmm. like uh, red giant has that um uh that shooter software that you can download that basically does that sort of thing for you but it seems like if i'm paying for lightroom it would be an interesting uh, alternative to try and give that a go for tagging labeling and sorting clips for a project Devin, do you have anything that you use specifically to sort video footage after you're done filming uh i'm very old-fashioned and uh i pretty much just uh, organize it. I've got, um, I can't think of the name of it, but I've got one or two programs I've used to do mass renaming and I've used that for a lot of things. Um, as well as I've been impressed with, uh, pluralize. I believe pluralize will also do file organizing and renaming once it understands the structure of each camera and shots and everything else. So, uh, but most of the time I try to organize before I go into my editor. So my backups are organized too. Uh, it just makes everything kind of easier, too, if I need to send somebody a grouping of shots or something like that. So for the most part, I haven't really adopted like a whole meta tagging system or anything like that. I mostly just kind of go, hey, there's this camera or, you know, I'll sort it. Usually I start into dates. Usually it's a multi-day shoot and it's easier if it's just two days or three days of shooting. I'll yeah. organize it into dates, then organize it into cameras um, and then organize it into scenes if it's required. When it's a longer thing like shooting a web series, uh, then usually there's already a structure because you're going by episode, scene, and whatever, and then cameras within that and audio files for that. So, um, you know, it's it seems silly because there's so much legwork before you get to editing, uh, but when you're halfway through a project and you need to go find this one thing, it's it's just worth it to do it up front and get it all done while it's fresh in your head and you know where everything goes. Yeah, and I have a method for sorting, but uh, basically what I do and I've done for a long time is when I get onto a shoot with a multi-camera setup, I reset the name or the number count on each of the files to zero. I go through each camera and I label the labels for the files that are written with something that makes sense for that particular project. And it counts from zero up. So as both camera operators run the cameras, they count up at the same uh, frequency. Mm -hmm. So you know that like if this camera has clip number 27 and this camera has clip number 28 they were shot probably either at the same time Mm -hmm. or within you know two shoots each other so you can get sort of to the right spot but where i ran into problems is i did that for every time i went out and shot on this feature length and now i have folders that are labeled like scene one and when i'm sharing a project file back and forth it goes to relink these and it says, oh, I found a file that was labeled, you know, RXT7-001, and yeah. there's th- there's four of them or five of them. And so then which right. one is it? Well, uh, 
duh, I don't know. Like, okay, click on this one. Mm-hmm. Oh, shoot, that one's not long enough. So now you just have empty space in your timeline, and it wasn't the shot you needed anyway. <laughs> and I thought it was being really clever worst. labeling these like this, and now I realize mm-hmm. there needs to be something, like another step after that in order to distinguish them. And maybe I'll add it to my camera labels with, like, an extra number or letter, like ABC, to sequence them through. But I need to do something because – it was a pain when I would send an edit out and then the project and the project would come back and I would try to relink the stuff, the assets, because, of course, mm-hmm. you know, they don't have the same exact file structure I have. So they linked assets. Then I get it back and I'm trying to link my assets and I've got them labeled as, you know, zero one. I've got 20 files labeled zero one. And it's like, which one is the zero one I need, you know, and I, I got to figure it out. But, man. That just slows you down. That took an extra four hours of just dinking around with imports trying to figure it out. So uh, any suggestions, (laughs) solutions uh, for large file management of that nature, uh, let me know. I'm interested to find out. I I don't do feature-length films all the time. And in the past, I've had the luxury of somebody uh, filing and taking care of all of my footage for me. Uh, This is my first foray into managing my own footage. So, uh, yeah, um, (laughs) that's a lot of crap to lose. <laughs> yeah, it, it sucks to get into that kind of thing halfway through a project. Yeah, and it's my fault too. I, it was poor planning. Like I was like, oh yeah, you know, we don't have because uh, uh, there's a guy that named Steve that used to f- uh, follow us and take care of that those sorts of things for us on a regular basis, and he couldn't make it to uh, four or five shoots. And I was like, well, no problem, Steve. I'll take care of the labeling. And like I'm like, oh no, what did I volunteer myself for? This is this is bad. This is not. Not good. Don't let DJ do that. <laughs> All right. Speaking of bad but not good, I got one last thing in the show notes here. And we talked about this uh, last week with Mitch, and I wanted to bring it up with you. The MoPro 7 from Lilliput. Uh, this thing is a GoPro monitor, basically a 7-inch monitor that straps to the back of your GoPro. Uh, it even has, like, a cute little case for your GoPro. It's a little weird. It's a little wacky. It's 249. It's got a 1280 by 800 resolution screen and a built-in battery with a quarter 20 mount Devin can you think of anything that you would want to use this MoPro 7 for nope absolutely nothing okay done (laughs) done that's it no I mean I mean really uh I I thought about it for a good while when uh you first sent me this and I I struggle it's you've literally turned a GoPro which one of its best features is its small size into an iPad yeah and it's (laughs) Like, sure, I guess if an iPad form factor is really necessary for your production, then go for it. Um, I just couldn't see it being useful. The only time, like, an iPad format, like, as as a camera size, as a camera form factor seemed to make sense to me was those Blackmagic Studio cameras. That's because they aren't going anywhere. You stick them on a tripod, you got a nice big screen, you got a little lens on the front, and that's it. That's all you need. Uh, But for this situation here... (laughs) I really don't know. Um, I guess for the one guy who is always like holding the camera and holding a monitor as he films things because he wants to see it on a bigger screen because he doesn't have a back screen or the back screen's too small for him. Sure, I guess it works for, you know, that guy, but I really just couldn't think of anything besides, oh, you get longer battery life. I don't even, I, I looked all over too and 
And besides the tripod mount in the bottom, that's the only thing I found useful on this whole piece of this whole rig. It'll add a tripod mount to your GoPro. Yeah, there's no handles either. So, you know, no. you can't grip onto it or hold it like you think you'd want to with something like this. It's like a tablet. Yeah, it's it's really <laughs> bizarre, but it's interesting. I mean, I'm glad yeah. Lilliput's still around. They've been known fairly well for the early implementation of HDMI monitors. And, you know, this does have mm-hmm. uh, buttons built in and playback buttons and record buttons that work with the the hero 4 black edition so you can right. screen your stuff maybe maybe you use this as a reviewing your footage unit uh when you're still out in the field and you're done shooting with your hero 4 or whatever on like a sporting event so you pop this in you hit play and you can show all your friends how awesome your backflips were uh when you were on your sure. jet skis uh that's about it really i can't think of anything else i uh, mean well and that's part of it too right because the the wide angle of the camera the whole point of it being wide angle is that your framing doesn't have to be perfect that's why they offer a wide mode and everything else so most of the time too i don't think a monitor is necessarily crucial except for when you're initially composing but also if you're skateboarding or snowboarding and you're just riding along you point in the general direction and it fits in frame because the gopro is so wide so it's like the monitor and even a huge monitor i don't think is crucial to the way people use a gopro so i'm not sure what this adds but i'm sure Lilliput has had a few people say, you know what I need? I need a really big monitor attached to my GoPro. I need to really see what I'm doing here. And they said, we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this looks like it's using um, one of their other IPS panels with just a backplate. So mm-hmm. in, in that case, like the cost to bring it to market is just a mold injection for the backplate and a, a couple of controls. Probably not the yeah. biggest issue for them to put out. And maybe there is enough of a market uh, that uh, people are going to clamor for maybe a thousand of these or a hundred of these. And it was worth it for them to just roll out a few, sell a few extra panels and make some money on it. Uh, I don't know what to do with this thing. It's out there. It's kind of interesting. Uh, it caught me off guard uh, earlier this week when I saw it. And, you know, wow. Wow is right? all I got <laughs> left on that. Anyway, Devin, you have anything else? Before uh, we wrap nope. up the show. Not at all. You can find me at impulsenetworks.tv where eventually I will maybe put out an article. <laughs> yeah, and I've been trying to uh, talk Devin into coming over to dslrfilmnoob.com and writing for me on a regular basis, but uh, he still denies me access, so I don't know if that will ever <laughs> happen. On that note, guys, you can find this podcast on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and anywhere podcasts are distributed. You can also swing over to YouTube and watch us on the One Lone Dork channel. You can find Devin at impulsemedia.tv. You can find me on dslrfilmnoob at dslrfilmnoob and on the what? what? I don't even know where I'm at anymore. Okay, that's <laughs> it for episode number 42 we will see you next week with another exciting broadcast of dslr film new podcast